is Let Your Voice Come Into Play. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. It's be heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. My voice is Selena Hill. Well, put the name to the voice. I'm <laughs> Selena Hill. I'm here with Stanley Fritz. He's back from D.C. And more ratchet than ever. Yeah, definitely. Especially with the music. I love it. Camping, 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 camping. <laughs> I guess. And we also have our... I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Whatever. We have a special guest commentator with us, Meredith. Barnes. Not back from D.C. Right. But back from across the street because she lives right here in Harlem. Yeah. Don't put yeah. a government out here. Oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. You know, <laughs> mayonnaise Twitter is always yeah. listening. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, Listen, yeah. we'll, give them the, we'll give them the place, but they got to figure out the apartment number on yes. their own. That's exactly. Right. So you don't know that. 365 <laughs> Thafford Avenue. Now you do. 6-3. Okay. But now they do. <laughs> now they do. Jackie no, and Alyssa don't. aren't here, FYI, but yes. hopefully they'll be back next week. Jackie had a good cheese conference to go to i can't yes. and Alyssa. she's at a pbr um coalition meeting okay so i knew i liked you Alyssa. you're my favorite one <laughs> <laughs> we also of course we have our intern here asinet who is doing the facebook live stream and the twitter asinet with the shoulders glowing in the streets and the hoop earrings i see you sister <laughs> my black queen looking like hennessy and applesauce mm, i love you girl I looking like an order of chicken wings sauce? or fried rice with ketchup hot sauce and barbecue sauce let me get your phone number give me the first six digits i forgot the last one he can stanley can't help it guys he cannot help it and we also have um our very special dreamer and doer in the building dj sienna we will be speaking to her later on in the show but right now we're gonna talk about islamophobia in light of a new study that found that hate crimes against muslims have reached a new high since the aftermath of 9-11 now islamophobia and just in case you're not familiar is a word for the hatred and fear of muslims something that i think is is completely irrational, but it's something that's growing. Now, according to this study, which was conducted at uh, California State University, San Bernardino, they found that hate crimes against Muslims went up 78% over the course of 2015. Just that one year. Just that one year. Wow. Okay. Now, some scholars believe that the violent backlash against American Muslims is driven by two things. White people? No. But yes. <laughs> no, well, so not quite, almost. Two things. Number one, it happens after a, uh, a terrorist attack. Mm-hmm. And it's also happening during and because of the presidential campaigns when ca- uh, candidates single out Muslims and associate them with terrorism. So, for example, you had uh, just last week Donald Trump, after a, mu- a Muslim man was charged with detonating bombs here in New York City in Chelsea, and then another one was accused of stabbing 10 people in Minnesota, Donald Trump urged police, office- police officers to profile, and I quote, suspicious people like they do in Israel. Then Donald Trump says, and I'm quoting, do we really have a choice? We're trying to be so politically correct in our country, and this is only to get worse, only going to get worse, end quote. Now, we've also heard Donald Trump call for a ban on Muslims mm-hmm. trying to immigrate to this country, especially refugees fleeing from Syria. And he's also called for a national registry of Muslims in the U.S. Not a registry of guns, because that would make too much sense. Just Muslims. <laughs> so basically, what I'm saying is this type of rhetoric it only perpetuates the white tears. White, white tears. tears. White tears. Where's my white tears cup? Uh, that's what <laughs> Meredith is giving me the white tears. If you're watching us via uh, Ustream. 
This or is, Facebook Live. Yes, this means white tears. So this type of rhetoric, it only perpetuates the irrational fear that some Americans have, thinking that Muslims will attack them. But you know what? Muslims have a fear that they're going to be attacked. It's estimated that 3.3 Muslims live in the United States. 3.3 million? Yes. Okay. And between 9-11 and 2015, only 344 have been involved in violent extremism, according to the Triangle Center on Terrorism and Homeland Security. So basically, violent extremists are outnumbered 10,000 to 1 in the United States. So that means people like Omar Martin, who we remember shot up that LGBTQ club in Florida a few months ago, he's not the norm. Yeah. That doesn't happen. Don't white people have more terrorist acts on American soil than um, totally? Islam- I, I am, when the bombing happened last week, and I had people from back home in Texas calling me to say like, "Oh, are you all right?" To every single one of them, I replied. I will, you know, they're like, be careful. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to just keep a watch out for any white man with a gun. Because that's statistically speaking who's going to kill me. Right. No, it's 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 true. Like it's and I, not, I have that fear. Like when I yes, see when I see they are terrifying white men. When I see, you know, Muslim people on the train reading the Quran next to me, I feel so peaceful. I'm just yeah. like, Oh, good morning, how are you doing? But then when I see like I get a little unnerved if I'm in an elevator with like a young white dude that looks like he may have a gun and like be a Trump supporter, I'm like, Oh shoot. You wanna, like you don't know what's gonna happen. You wanna talk about white terrorism? The big bang theory. All right? That's the called show? Um, <laughs> like the TV show? Excuse me? <laughs> yes. Bazinga. Or how about Cheers? That's white oh, yeah. terrorism. That's white terrorism for or sure. MASH. Okay. No, okay. come on. Lay off of MASH. That's a classic. She's like, uh. <laughs> so, so terrorism is actually happening against you know Muslims at mosques. There's assaults. There's shootings. There's threats of violence. One study that was done by a nonpartisan group said that uh, based on uh, police reports in 20 states, there have been about 260 hate crimes against Muslims nationwide just in 2015. Now, that is a huge increase and also the biggest increase annually since 2001. Hmm. After 2001, after the 9-11 attacks, there were about 481 documented hate crimes against Muslims. And the numbers just keep rising. But get this, hate crimes against blacks, Hispanics, Jews, gays, and whites are declining. The only thing it's the only hate crimes that are uh, inclining are Muslims and trans people. FYI. So to help us with this conversation, we have a very special guest who has Skyped in. We have Professor Sahara Aziz. She is an associate professor at Texas A.M. University School of Law, where she teaches courses on national security, civil rights, and Middle East law. She also serves as a non-resident fellow at Brookings Daha Center. Do we have um, Professor Aziz with us? Well, certainly the experience has changed quite a bit over the last 15 years. Uh, before 9-11, there was certainly bias and prejudice against Muslims and Islam, but it wasn't nearly at the rate that we're seeing now, and it wasn't as visible. It was much more covert, and it was associated much more with the conflict between uh, the Palestinians and the Israelis, so it was always centered around that political issue. Uh, and so many Arabs and and Muslims were what I would call an invisible minority, where generally speaking, they were seen as exotic or strange or different and then to the extent they were associated with Palestinians or Palestine, then you would see a much more overt association with terrorism. 
Now, after 9-11, what happened is that the definition of the terrorist expanded significantly and started to encompass anybody who is Muslim, regardless what their national origin is, regardless what their race or ethnicity is, or how long they've even lived in the country. So it has gotten to the point now where Muslims are dealing with a similar situation that African Americans deal with in terms of the stereotyping of black men as inherently violent or criminal or gang uh, gangsters or Latinos as presumed to be undocumented, illegal, uh, people who steal jobs, people who don't pay taxes. So you have certain types of stereotypes associated with certain races and ethnicities. And uh, the big difference now is post 9-11, this stereotype of the terrorist Muslim, the nonviolent, barbaric, uh, anti-peace, uh, you know, anti-American has become the default stereotype and then every individual has to shoulder the burden of persuading their neighbors and their friends and their co-workers that they are in fact not those stereotypes. Mm -hmm. but yeah, professor, you, you know, you're absolutely right. And you said something that was really profound um, about how Muslims are being stereotyped almost comparably to how black Americans have been racially profiled in this country. Hence the reason why we titled this segment, Muslim is the New Black, the mm -hmm. rise of Islamophobia. Now, you know, the director of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at the San Bernardino campus, he said that the frequency of anti-Muslim violence um, has increased immediately after uh, Trump's most incendiary comments. And a number of experts also say that they are also very concerned that uh, Donald Trump's rhetoric has legitimized threatening or even violent conduct by a small fringe of his supporters. So can you talk more about the role that Donald Trump has played in the growth as, in Islamophobia and that correlation? a politician or a presidential candidate or someone with power and influence, whenever you have them engaging in what I would call hateful speech and xenophobic speech, it uh, emboldens those who already have those biases to be out in the open and to act on them. And it also persuades those that are on the fence because they're ignorant or unfamiliar with those groups and essentially takes them into the side of, of bias and, and prejudice. So he has the bully pulpit as a presidential candidate, and I think he's using it very irresponsibly, not just with Muslims, but also with Latinos and even with African Americans. And he's clearly uh, egging on this rising xenophobia that is gripping our nation, partly, I think, or in large part because the demographics are changing. And that's creating a lot of anxiety among certain groups of Americans who see that their sense of entitlement to certain opportunities is in jeopardy and that perhaps the privilege that comes with belonging to a particular race or ethnicity uh, may no longer be as secure as it has been in the past just by sheer changes in demographics. So thank you so much for that comment. Um, Professor, I do have a question from someone who was watching the show via Facebook Live. This is from Bernice Thomas, and she goes, After 9-11, the, the word terrorism and the whole has become an issue, not so much only Muslims, but mostly, but for all people that are different from American people. So the question is, how is national security supposed to keep alert of the real terrorist white people <clears throat> and not discriminate against others? Well... Uh a professional who's in the national security field uh, should, there are certain practices that are 
uh, tried and true, which is where you focus on individualized suspicion, individual actions. For example, people who purchase certain types of chemicals, people who are purchasing assault weapons, people who are uh, associating with people who are also under investigation based on their suspicious activity for terrorism. And rather than casting a very wide net that is based on nothing short of profiling, which is a complete waste of law enforcement resources, and it also stigmatizes entire race and ethnic and religious communities, but that they follow the lead based on behavior. And rather than based on somebody's political beliefs or somebody's immutable characteristics or religious identity. And clearly that doesn't seem to be what's been happening because you have two things or two problems in national security. The first is that you're seeing individuals uh, attempting plots or successfully engaging in terrorist plots and the FBI is caught flat-footed but at the same time, the FBI is very aggressively engaging in sting operations where it is luring in vulnerable youth who are Muslim, oftentimes those who have mental health problems or are having a personal crisis in their life, and they are sending informants and undercover agents to effectively lure them into these sting operations, and then they uh, arrest them at a certain point in time. And so there's this disconnect between this aggressive sting operations, and yet people are in fact uh, successfully engaging in terrorist plots like, for example, what happened in, in Florida and San Bernardino. Uh, thank you so much for that, Professor Aziz. We actually do have to go on a break. But when we come back, I want to talk about how Donald Trump's rhetoric is not only... ...with terrorism. Now, after 9-11, what happened is that the definition of the terrorist expanded significantly and started to encompass anybody who is Muslim regardless what their national origin is, regardless what their race or ethnicity is, or how long they've even lived in the country. So it has gotten to the point now where Muslims are dealing with a similar situation that African Americans deal with in terms of the stereotyping of black men as inherently violent or criminal or gang, uh, gangsters or Latinos as presumed to be undocumented, illegal, uh, people who steal jobs, people who don't pay taxes. So you have certain types of stereotypes associated with certain races and ethnicities. And uh, the big difference now is post 9-11, this stereotype of the terrorist Muslim, the nonviolent, barbaric, uh, anti-peace, uh, you know, anti-American has become the default stereotype. And then every individual has to shoulder the burden of persuading their neighbors and their friends and their co-workers that they are, in fact, not those stereotypes. Mm -hmm. yeah, Professor, you, you know, you're absolutely right. And you said something that was really profound um, about how Muslims are being stereotyped almost comparatively to how black Americans have been racially profiled in this country. Hence the reason why we titled this segment, Muslim is the New Black, the mm -hmm. Rise of Islamophobia. Now, you know, the director of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at the San Bernardino campus he said that the frequency of anti-Muslim violence um, has increased immediately after uh, Trump's most incendiary comments. And a number of experts also say that they are also very concerned that uh, Donald Trump's rhetoric has legitimized 
threatening or even violent conduct by a small fringe of his supporters. So can you talk more about the role that Donald Trump has played in the growth in Islamophobia and that correlation? Whenever you have them engaging in what I would call hateful speech and xenophobic speech, it uh, emboldens those who already have those biases to be out in the open and to act on them. And it also persuades those that are on the fence because they're ignorant or unfamiliar with those groups and essentially takes them into the side of of bias and, and prejudice. So he has the bully pulpit as a presidential candidate, and I think he's using it very irresponsibly, not just with Muslims, but also with Latinos and even with African Americans. And he's clearly uh, egging on this rising xenophobia that is gripping our nation, partly, I think, or in large part because the demographics are changing. And that's creating a lot of anxiety among certain groups of Americans who see that their sense of entitlement to certain opportunities is in jeopardy and that perhaps the privilege that comes with belonging to a particular race or ethnicity uh, may no longer be as secure as it has been in the past just by sheer changes in demographics. So thank you so much for that comment. Um, Professor, I do have a question from someone who was watching the show via Facebook Live. This is from Bernice Thomas, and she goes, After 9-11, the, world, the word terrorism and the whole has become an issue, not so much only Muslims, but mostly, but for all people that are different from American people. So the question is, how is national security supposed to keep alert of the real terrorists, white people, <clears throat> and not discriminate against others? Well... Uh- a professional who's in the national security field uh, should, there are certain practices that are uh, tried and true, which is where you focus on individualized suspicion, individual actions. For example, people who purchase certain types of chemicals, people who are purchasing assault weapons, people who are uh, associating with people who are also under investigation based on their suspicious activity for terrorism. And rather than casting a very wide net that is based on nothing short of profiling, which is a complete waste of law enforcement resources, and it also stigmatizes entire race and ethnic and religious communities, but that they follow the lead based on behavior. And rather than based on somebody's political beliefs or somebody's immutable characteristics or religious identity. And... Clearly, that doesn't seem to be what's been happening because you have two things or two problems in national security. The first is that you're seeing individuals uh, attempting plots or successfully engaging in terrorist plots, and the FBI is caught flat-footed. But at the same time, the FBI is very aggressively engaging in sting operations where it is luring in vulnerable youth who are Muslim oftentimes those who have mental health problems or are having a personal crisis in their life, and they are sending informants and undercover agents to effectively lure them into these sting operations, and then they uh, arrest them at a certain point in time. And so there's this disconnect between this aggressive sting operations, and yet people are, in fact, uh, successfully engaging in terrorist plots, like, for example, what happened in, in Florida and San Bernardino. 
Uh, thank you so much for that, Professor Aziz. We actually do have to go on a break. But when we come back, I want to talk about how Donald Trump's rhetoric is not only perpetuating and fueling Islamophobia in this country, but it's helping ISIS. So we're going to talk about that here, right here on Let Your Voice Be Heard. That's right. That's what I do. We're back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR. 90.3 FM. The voice of Harlem. Again, I'm (laughs) Selena Hill. Stanley Fritz is the one making all of the offensive comments, so send hate mail to him. And we have a special guest commentator with us, Meredith Barnes, who has 3,600 followers on Twitter. This is a surprise (laughs) for me. All right, so... If you look at me, you just wouldn't know. That's I, I the secret of Twitter is, like, it's not visible. Yeah. Right. It's not a visible glory. It's just, it's only on the internet. Yeah, mm-hmm. but that that's pretty impressive, Meredith. Um, we also have a very special guest who has Skyped in with us. You know, FYI, our phone lines are down, guys. So if you're trying to call in, just tweet us at BeHeard underscore radio. Or leave a comment on Facebook Live where we're yes. streaming. Yes, and I think the phone line should be up soon, so bear with us. And that very special guest who we have on the line is Professor Sahara Aziz. Uh, she's calling in all the way from Texas, where she uh, teaches about national security, Middle Eastern law, and some other cool stuff. And uh, we're talking about the rise of Islamophobia in the U.S. Now, before we left off, I was talking about how Donald Trump's campaign pretty much fuels it because he's saying things like we should ban Muslim immigrants in Syria who are fleeing civil war and violence and saying we should have a national registry of Muslims, which makes absolutely no sense. And when he says these things with which alienate and discriminate against this one group, what happens is you're having a lot of people who feel very rejected. And instead, a lot of times they internalize that and they feel like they have nowhere to go. And they feel like the U.S. is not for them. Like, you know, they don't feel like you can be both Muslim and American. So they're turning to a lot of radical groups who are saying, the West is not for you. America is not for you. Come over here. You know, we're ISIS. We, we're going to help you and we're going to take over and we're going to fight these discriminatory forces and this evil. And basically, Donald Trump's rhetoric is just playing into that narrative. So I wanted to get our experts' opinion on this because, to me, it seems extremely problematic. And it's not just Donald Trump who's doing this. It's other politicians. So, um, Professor Aziz, if you can just talk about the effect that anti-Islamic rhetoric has on ISIS recruitment. Yeah. Well, it's it's, it's certainly assisting ISIS in corroborating its narrative that America is at war with Islam. And that is an important component of the legitimizing narrative because they want to tell the world and the 1.5 billion Muslims, 99.9% of them who reject them, they want to tell them that they're freedom fighters, they're not terrorists. And the way that you portray yourself as a freedom fighter is you try to show that the other side is on the offensive and you are simply engaging in self-defense. So the more that America and Europe behaves in ways that appear to be uh, affirmatively discriminating against and subordinating Muslims, the more that ISIS is going to use that to claim that it is, in fact, a freedom-fighting organization, not a terrorist organization. So I think the American government needs to be very careful not to either purposely or inadvertently perpetuate that narrative. But with regard to how effective it's been, Uh, In many ways, it has not been very effective 
in the United States in terms of recruiting young men. The FBI has been more effective in recruiting young Muslim men who are vulnerable in its sting operations using its informants and, and FBI undercover agents because you have about 250 over the last you know, three to four years since uh, ISIS declared itself, which was in 2014, only 250 have actually gone abroad, of which there's a certain percentage that's unknown that are really going just for humanitarian purposes. So we don't know how many went to Syria and Iraq to actually join ISIS. In comparison to over 5,000 in Europe and um, more than 10,000 in the Middle East writ large. So that's a good sign that generally the United States is a place where immigrants are better integrated than in Europe and that Muslims in general historically have been better treated than in Europe where they are much more equivalent to African Americans, particularly in the inner cities uh, that have been historically and for many generations uh, mistreated and neglected by the US government and, and the larger society. But that doesn't mean that we should sit on our laurels because what we're seeing over the last five to ten years as we see these stats get worse is that Muslims are increasingly becoming discriminated against and becoming marginalized and that their immigrant experience is one of rejection and exclusion. And so I think we have to be much more active and cognizant and aware in rejecting that because it's going to worsen the ability of the United States to be a country that has integrated immigrants. Professor, thank you so much for that. And I want to jump in really quickly because I want to plug a book that I read about three years ago. It's called How Does It Feel to Be a Problem? And forgive me, I forgot the author's name, uh -huh. but what the author pretty much documents is gets for these first-person reenactments of Muslim, young Muslim Americans, young Muslim millennials who maybe police and not the NYPD infiltrated their mosque and were trying to radicalize them who their families came here legally and then they were arrested by immigration police and they were held in prison for months at a time with no trial with no explanation of what they did wrong when they came back their property was seized or they couldn't work so they lost their, their inside their family earnings and this is before Trump so Trump is a horrible piece of garbage made from Cheetos and I can't say that on there, can I? No. And old things which I can't mention because the FCC is watching us very closely. But we have had some seriously problematic tactics in dealing with people of Islamic faith in this country for quite some time, particularly under Bush and definitely under Obama. Professor Aziz, can you chime into that? Well, first, the author's name is Professor Mustafa Bayoumi, who wrote that book. And... This phenomena is effectively the next iteration of what's been happening for decades, if not centuries, with African-American communities, and now more recently with Latino communities. The same FBI officers, the same police departments that are profiling and discriminating and targeting Muslim Americans are the ones who have been uh, at times shooting African-American men, as we're seeing and profiling Latinos and assuming that they're either gangsters, criminals, or undocumented. So we shouldn't disconnect the experiences of these communities because it's the state, same government actors and it's the same philosophy of uh, subordination or, or stereotyping of these communities. It just gets manifested in different ways. One is focused on anti-terrorism, another may be focused on anti-drug versus anti-gang, and others focuses on so-called immigration enforcement. So uh, we need to start connecting the dots to see that these structural uh, disparities or the structural problems that produce these, this disparate treatment are, are 
the same. They just get manifested in different ways. Uh, Professor Aziz, you're absolutely right. And I remember a while back we had a discussion where we also connected the dots to how um, people like uh, gang leaders in Chicago were so successfully recruiting young black boys between the ages of like eight and 12. And they would continue to build up, you know, their, their gangs, their, their gangs in that way. And we were talking about how ISIS was using that same tactic where you have these marginalized communities, these people who are being called the other because of their brown, because of the way that they pray and worship. And then you have politicians who say we should ban you guys. And they because they feel Feel this, they're also turning to, you know, other leaders who are who are being very welcoming and inviting. So I'm very happy that you're, you know, the, connecting these dots. And um, we know that this is not the way to stop ISIS, right? We don't want to play into their narrative and into their hands. Can you tell us what advice have you or should should be given to congressional leaders and politicians when it comes to effectively stopping ISIS recruitment and, you know, just being more welcoming to Muslims who could be allies in, in the fight against terrorism? Well, my primary advice is to stick to your values, stick to your American values. The problem, the problem we have is we have a we have a disconnect. Oh, I, I think we're disconnected from you. Professor Aziz, can you um, can you repeat that? You said we have a disconnect and then we didn't hear anything else you said just now. OK, we, did we lose her on the line? Yeah, so I, yeah, we seem to. Oh, no, no, there she is. Yeah, the problem. Oh, there she went oh, again. The problem we have is a disconnect between their values, their stated values and their rhetoric is you have congressional leaders not including in Trump and his ilk, but you have a number of congressional leaders, particularly in, on the Republican side, who claim that America is a place of equality and due process and liberty and freedom of religion and freedom of speech. And they speak lofty rhetoric, but when it comes to actually implementing that rhetoric, it's clear that it doesn't apply equally to all communities. So if they, made the simple step of actually implementing what they proclaim their values are, this constitution that they are so uh, vested in defending and claiming that it is under threat, then I think that we would go a long way in being able to protect these minority communities because we would not be allowing racial and religious profiling. We would hold police accountable for violating uh, Fourth Amendment and Fifth Amendment rights and also uh, holding them accountable for abusing their power. And uh, it's really not difficult to do if you, in fact, don't hold any bias and if you, in fact, believe that those values should apply to every person in the United States. So what we're seeing is a bit of hypocrisy and contradictions. And I think that congressional leaders need to be held accountable. And in many ways, what Trump is doing is exposing that hypocrisy. He is essentially saying what people are thinking. And I think it's a wake-up call for the United States to do some serious self-reflection and ask, have we, in fact, become post-racial? Have we, in fact, become colorblind? Have we, in fact, made progress on civil rights the way that we are teaching our children in schools that we have? And what we're seeing with the rhetoric from Trump is that, no, we haven't. And it's not his rhetoric that's concerning. It's his popularity. Yeah. The fact that he has such a strong following. Right. 
Professor Aziz, thank you so much again for just sharing that expertise. I mean, we are right there with you and agree. Can you please just tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you, uh, maybe read some of your readings, follow you on Twitter, et cetera? I want to read your readings. Yes, you can follow me on Twitter at Sahar Aziz Law, S-A-H-A-R-A-Z-I-Z Law. And you can also find me on Facebook under Sahar F, as in Frank, Aziz. And you can also read my work on Huffington Post and on the Social Science Research Network, which is SSRN.com, and just look up my name and you'll see many of my academic articles. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you thank so you. thank you so much, Professor. And then I just wanted to end by saying this, just in case you weren't aware, you know, we have a problem in our country when in Brooklyn, two women who were out with their children in strollers were attacked just this month by a woman screaming anti-Islamic things and tried to rip off their veils. Mm. We have a problem in this country when in Queens, a man was beaten just in April by three strangers shouting ISIS, ISIS. We have a problem in this country when in Minneapolis, a man was shouting obscenities about an is uh, about Islam and then shot two Muslim men who were wearing traditional Muslim garb. We have a problem in this country when in St. Louis, a man pointed a gun at a Muslim family shopping on his block and told them that they should, and I quote, all die. That was in February. We have a problem in this country when Muslims are told that their mosque, unlike churches and synagogues, cannot serve as election polling stations. Right. That's we crazy. have a problem in this country when people continue to fight to keep Muslims from building mosques in their neighborhoods. That happened right around uh, the World Trade Center after when people want to build yep. a mosque to worship and pray, probably pray for the victims of the families of 9-11. We have a problem in this country when six in 10 Americans have never held a conversation with a Muslim, according to the Public Religion Research Institute. And we have a problem in this country when 57% of Americans also say that they know little about Islam, while 26% say they say 26% say they know nothing at all. We have a problem in this country when in 2011, more than half of American Muslims under the age of 30 said that they were treated with suspicion, called offensive names, and singled out by law enforcement or have been physically threatened in the preceding year alone. We have a problem in this country. It's called Islamophobia, and it's time for us all to wake up and hold people accountable. If you're not Muslim, yourself be an ally and call out the people that you know, that you love, and that you work with when they say things that are wrong. And that's how we solve the problem in this country. On that note, we're going to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We're coming back to the Dreamer and Doer series right here on Let Your Voice Be Heard. 